Welcome to the Head, the Heart, and the Briefcase podcast, where we take constantly evolving workplace psychology research and translate it into easy-to-understand bites leaders like you can use in your everyday life. I'm Alexandra Hunt. And I'm Natalie Grogan. Episode two. Wow, y'all really blew us away with the support on our first episode. Right now, we're recording these real-time versus batching several, so it's very cool to get to thank you all lifetime for the great conversations and support we've received on LinkedIn and our professional networks. Yes, thank you so much to everyone who's reached out, shared, given us five stars. We really appreciate all of you and are super excited to bring you another episode. On last week's episode, we shared a little about ourselves and dove deep into entitlement in the workplace. Today, we kick off our two-week discussion on emotional intelligence, which we are so excited to dig into. But first, we're going to briefly unpack something so many of you commented on, our podcast name. Natalie, why don't you break down the head, the heart, and the briefcase and how we landed on such a powerful name? I can't believe we didn't explain it on the first episode. I realized that after we published it. So the head, the heart, and the briefcase make up the whole person who shows up at work every day. The head represents things like behavioral drives, what motivates you, and cognitive ability. The heart represents your culture, values, interests, things like that. And the briefcase represents your knowledge, skills, abilities, and kind of your overall experience with work. So these are the areas that influence how we experience the world of work. That, that's a great breakdown, Natalie. Thank you. And guys, everything we discuss on this podcast will fall into at least one, if not all three of those categories. As Natalie touched on, all three of these components work together to influence our behavior and outcomes, not just at work, but at home too. When we think about everything fitting into the head, the heart, and the briefcase categories, you know, today we're talking about emotional intelligence. So when we talk about the head, emotional intelligence plays a very strong role in behavior. When we think about the heart, emotional intelligence influences how we feel, how we interact with the world. It truly influences our relationships and how we communicate and our own self-concept. When we think about the briefcase, emotional intelligence has serious consequences for organizational success. And we're going to touch on each of these things as we go through the next two episodes. Alex, I'm really interested in your personal thoughts and experiences with emotional intelligence, you know, in your life and work before we dive too deep into the details, because you and I have talked about this fairly often. Yes, of course. So I look at emotional intelligence as kind of a choice on how willing you are to be really real. So not acting or pretending to feel how you think you should and not being afraid of the emotions you're experiencing, but a capacity to actually recognize what you're feeling. Identify why you might be experiencing that feeling, decide on how you want to handle it, exercise the self-control and self-awareness to not project that onto others, but really self-regulate. So you're using that self-analysis to have more productive conversations and determine what's a you problem and what's something worth addressing with those around you. And I should make the disclaimer, I'm saying all of this as an incredibly emotional and sensitive person. So it's not quite the scientific definition that Natalie is going to give us, but more of a reflection on my personal experience through years and years of laughs and tears, as cheesy as that sounds. <laughs> well, you're pretty close to the technical definition, but, <laughs> um, you know, I didn't place a whole lot of value on emotional intelligence at work until pretty recently since I dived deep into studying it because the construct was really poorly defined and I kind of equated it with being over empathetic and that overly feelings based direction that business has been going. 
I've really changed my tune because I'm realizing how that misinterpretation is contributing to perpetuating bad habits, weak relationships, and poor performance of individuals, teams, and organizations. It's also really helped me connect the dots between emotional intelligence and well-being. Natalie, I love that you share that perspective because I think a lot of people are in that boat and we're in that camp of things are going way too feelings-based. People need to toughen up and we don't need to be discussing or worrying about emotions in the workplace. I personally have been really looking forward to this conversation since we first decided to even do a podcast together because I know it's going to help so many people gain perspective, not only on others, but within themselves too. Factoring in emotional intelligence helps us bring an element of understanding as to why we react and respond to situations the way we do and how we can have a greater sense of control and intentionality behind that. It also allows us to be more gracious and understanding to those around us. Humans aren't robots and we have to deal with and take responsibility for the emotional side, as fun as that might not seem. Exactly. Well, Alex, you gave us a great overview from your perspective on emotional intelligence um, that's, you know, covers a lot of the technical definition and some of the facets of emotional intelligence. And there are many definitions out there. They all kind of lead to the same thing. though. So we'll dive a little deeper into that. At a high level, emotional intelligence is the ability to understand, use, and manage your own emotions in positive ways to help relieve stress, communicate effectively, empathize with other people, overcome challenges, and diffuse conflict. All of those things, stress relief, communication, empathy, problem solving, conflict resolution, they're all important to working with others, managing people, and interacting with clients and customers. Exactly. And emotional intelligence could explain why some people are better managers despite not having technical skills and why some managers are able to develop better relationships and communicate more effectively, you know, with less effort and they have an easier time motivating people. So as we've established, I kind of non-scientifically summarized the five main competencies of emotional intelligence a minute ago. The more professional way to define them would be self-awareness, which is when you recognize your own strengths, weaknesses, emotions, your own self-worth, your capabilities. Number two is self-regulation, resisting emotional impulses. That's where you think before acting. My mom always encourages my siblings and I to respond, not react. That choice is made here in self-regulation. Number three would be motivation. That's the driving force that enables you to focus on the task at hand and persevere to reach your goals. Empathy is number four. That's your interaction with others, understanding personalities and relating to feelings. You're better equipped to act on those behaviors and successfully respond to their needs when you practice empathy, which for clarification, this is a question that we get a lot, empathy versus sympathy. Empathy is truly understanding how someone feels, whereas sympathy is acknowledging someone else is experiencing a feeling even if you can't directly relate to it. And that brings us to number five, which is your social skills. That's nurturing good work relationships, being adept at listening to understand versus listening to respond, conflict management, leadership, and collaboration. Those five competencies are what we measure when we assess emotional intelligence, but there are also 16 facets of emotional intelligence, and those are broken down into four categories. These facets are the input, whereas the competencies are the output or the observable behavior of emotional intelligence. Okay, so facets are input, competencies are output. Natalie, why don't you break that down for us? All right. Well, first, 
I should just tell you, you can think of each of these things on a sliding scale. Uh, in the last episode, we were talking about personality traits and how you don't have zero, you don't have none of something. It's just you have a little bit or a lot of it. And that is a sliding scale. So the first one is well-being. So it's a generalized sense of well-being that results from a positive evaluation of the self, of one's life, and of one's future. The facets that fall under that are self-esteem, happiness, and optimism. That makes sense for well-being, right? The second is self-control, and that's self-efficacy in regulating feelings and impulses. So self-efficacy is your ability to manage things on your own. The facets under that are emotional regulation, stress management, and low impulsiveness. The third is emotionality. So emotionality is accurate perceptions of one's own and others' feelings, effective expressions of feelings, and being able to use those to enhance relationships. So the facets that fall under there are emotion perception, emotion expression, relationship skills, and empathy. And finally, we have sociability, self-perceived ability to influence others, communicate confidently, and effectively network with people. And those facets are social competence, managing others' emotions, and assertiveness. We'll put a nice graphic or PDF on LinkedIn and the website so you don't have to remember all of these, but it's really helpful to give emotional intelligence that depth of context for how it's defined. And that gets us all speaking the same language and kind of on the same page as we go through this discussion. We want to make it as easy as possible for y'all to use the information we share. So let us know if you want clarification on anything we discuss. There's a link in the show notes to leave us a voice message, or if you prefer, our email is hello at hhbpodcast.com. Alex, do you know what's coming next? I don't think we're ready for it gets worse yet. So it must be something technical. <laughs> ding, ding. It's time for something technical. So a lot of people ask how emotional intelligence correlates with other personality factors. So before you go into the technicality of that, break down what you mean by personality factors for us. By personality factors, I mean those factors and traits that things like the five-factor model of personality measures, uh, which are agreeableness, conscientiousness, openness, extroversion, and neuroticism. And then we also use the predictive index and the factors that that measures are dominance, extroversion, patience, and formality. So really just the other factors that make up a person's personality uh, apart from emotional intelligence. Thank you. That is super helpful to get us all on the same page by what you mean. I always like us to be able to share definitions. It makes everything a lot more clear. So the research shows that emotional intelligence is actually its own trait, separate from those other personality factors. It was originally a holdup of mine in taking emotional intelligence seriously, as I mentioned earlier, because when I first read the formal definition years ago, it seemed obvious that there were ties between emotional intelligence and these other factors. Like they work together somehow or re were related to one another. It's so interesting to hear your perspective on not really taking it seriously, because as we've established, my emotions are very greedy on trying to take the reins of my brain. So emotional intelligence has never really been optional for me to consider or factor in unless I want to be a total basket case, of course. Really, until I started talking about it with others, I didn't realize how underutilized or dismissed it really was. I really love you sharing your personal experiences, Alex. Thank you. Um, it turns out that despite being its own trait and being measured separately from personality, it actually does correlate with neuroticism and extroversion. Which isn't surprising. 
it isn't. And how it's understood pretty commonly in the literature is that neuroticism has very strong negative correlations with both self-control and well-being. And neuroticism, for those of you who tuned in last week, learned that it is an ongoing state of negative reactions or feelings and a person's inability to control things like aggression, anxiety, fear, negativity, depression. Exactly. And what I mean by strong negative correlation is that people who are high in neuroticism tend to be low in self-control and well-being, which are those two aspects of emotional intelligence. Which makes a lot of sense. Extroversion, on the other hand, has a very large positive correlation with well-being and sociability, meaning that people high in extroversion are more likely to have a stronger sense of well-being and their ability to influence people and communicate well. To clarify, when we talk about extroversion, we aren't just talking about extroverts or introverts, but the drive for social interaction with other people or the way that somebody communicates the best. Exactly. So we've defined emotional intelligence as essentially the ability to use emotions and recognize them in others to help motivate, inform, and influence. And guess what? All of those things help you become a better leader, communicator, and a team player. So you say better leader. Let's get into that for a minute. A while back, you had told our team about a study that found somewhere like 95% of people think they are self-aware, but only 5 to 10% really are. That was a huge wake-up call in evaluating ourselves and giving grace to others and coaching our teams. How does this cognitive dissonance translate to emotional intelligence? Yes, that's one of my favorite studies by Tasha Yorick, and she is a very nice woman who has uh, written back to me before when I asked her some questions about her study. So um, big shout out to Tasha Yorick. Um, as we discussed before, self-awareness is both an input and an output of emotional intelligence, right? So it's on the five competencies and it's in the four categories of facets. So it's an input and an output. Which, as we talked about, emotional intelligence has always been something that's really important to me and a big part of my life. But then when we look at the data like this, it makes me sit back and stop and reflect and say, okay, time out. Where am I at on this spectrum? Like, am I being emotionally intelligent? Am I getting caught up in things? Am I letting my emotions hijack everything? And it really makes me reflect to make sure that I'm making the progress I should be making. Yeah, same here. And I feel like that's a very natural reaction to think like, only five to 10% of people, what are the odds that I'm in that five to 10% of people, right? But Alex, for, for you, without assessing you, I would say that you have a pretty high level of emotional intelligence. Well, thanks. Like I said, years of laughs and tears. For those who want to dive deeper into self-awareness, we're putting two links in the show notes. One is a behavioral assessment that will only take you five minutes from the predictive index. And the other is a self-rating of emotional intelligence. The predictive index assessment, and I often refer to them as PI. So if you hear me say PI, that means predictive index. Their assessment's great for general self-awareness of how you take action, how you make decisions, how you handle risk, how you connect with others, interact with others, and how you handle rules. There are a lot of emotional intelligence assessments. Jeez, emotional intelligence assessments. That's a tough one to say. <laughs> there are a lot of emotional intelligence assessments out there, and some are more complex than the one that I'm going to share with you, but I, I do like this one a lot. Um, but maybe I'll put two or three in there just to give you some options. You can kind of compare your results to um, each of them. 
So we'll be right back to talk more about the impact of both high and low emotionally intelligent people after a word from our sponsors. And we're back. There's so much to talk about when it comes to emotional intelligence and its importance at work. And we struggled with where to start and how to break it up because we want to give you all of the valuable information. Yeah, it was a challenge, but we landed on focusing this episode on the foundations of emotional intelligence and the individual and how emotional intelligence shows up for the self, for employees and managers you know, as individuals. Next week, we'll discuss the impact of emotional intelligence on teams and organizations, as well as dive deep into generational differences, which is really my favorite research paper of everything I've read about emotional intelligence, because there are very uh, distinct generational differences. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Natalie, because I think generational differences is a foundational component of this topic. Because when you talk to different generations, you get everything from people need to toughen up to I'm triggered by everything. So I'm really glad we're going to be diving into this deeper. And for those of you who relate to that topic, that issue, you're facing that at work, definitely stay tuned for next week's episode where we give you some really great tools on how to handle that and how to improve it in yourself and recognize it. And honestly, we could probably do a dozen episodes on emotional intelligence, but like we said, today we're going to start with the differences between high emotional intelligence and low emotional intelligence and how that influences work. Generally, people with higher emotional intelligence scores also score higher on agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness. And that personality in the five-factor model of behavior that we talked about before is linked to functioning better within an organization. So people with higher emotional intelligence handle stress better. They're more responsive than reactive when things don't go their way. And they tend to rationalize unfavorable decisions better. So a good example of that is someone with high emotional intelligence, if they uh, are up for a promotion and they don't get the promotion, they don't blame the decision on the person who made the decision. It, they rationalize it was probably pretty difficult for them to make that decision or maybe there's a factor that I'm not considering rather than, you know, throwing a fit and getting angry about it. Well, I think there's also an element there of recognizing that somebody else just might've been better suited for the job too. I feel like that takes some emotional intelligence, right? It certainly does. On the other side, work-related emotional intelligence seems to protect against things like theft and abuse, uh, result in less hostile feelings about work. You know, they can separate, like I said, work and decisions and the people making them. And people with higher emotional intelligence tend to perform better on tasks and engage in those organizational citizenship behaviors we were talking about last week. So when you say protect against theft and abuse, what do you mean by that? They're less likely to steal you know, little things from their organizations, steal time from their organizations, uh, participate in abusive supervision or belittling their colleagues, things like that. Oh, okay. Thank you. Welcome. So there's this thing called emotional hijacking, and this tends to happen to people lower in emotional intelligence. So emotional hijacking is a perceived threat, usually the unknown, um, becomes so big that it causes a person to be out of control emotionally and physically. So they get an adrenaline surge, increased heart rate, and high blood pressure. That's the physical side of things. Okay, that description you just gave, Natalie, makes me think of several experiences I've had where 
and it's been more the younger generation that I've had these experiences with. So I'm very curious if there's generational correlation here where that trigger culture is masquerading as emotional intelligence. And so then those loud and dramatic and those hijacking, emotional hijackings are happening in the workplace. I mean, what's the, what's the correlation there? And I'm jumping the gun because I know we're talking about it next week, but can you just connect that for us real quick? Well, I can't make any correlations between emotional hijacking and the generational differences because I don't have data on that, but there are, you know, there, there are some extrapolations that we can make. And I, but part of the studies that I have read say it's happening. The emotional hijacking is happening more frequently because change is constant, you know, business environment, family structures, educational systems, societal values, everything's changing at such a fast pace these days. So you can kind of relate that to the experience of the younger generation and that being all they've experienced in life where older people are more likely to have experienced some more stability earlier in their life. Does that help? Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So when all this emotional hijacking is happening to somebody, people can't cope with this change. They have a high level of fear. They lose control over how to handle it. And their stress level increases proportionally. So a high level of doubt, low level of self-confidence, ultimately leading to low self-esteem. Which we see all the time in the clients we work with. We do. And we provide them with tools to help amplify emotional intelligence uh, with an understanding of personality profiling, understanding of self-esteem, um, awareness of negative and positive behaviors, and utilization of proactive listening. Which is listening more to understand the other person than to react and respond to them. Yeah. So when you're proactively listening, your senses are alert and you're focused on words and feelings. So emotional communication is really 93% feeling and 7% content, which is something I was not aware of before, you know, diving into this topic. Wow. Um, Only 7% actual content. Yeah. It's pretty crazy, right? Proactive listeners also are able to take mental notes and not use restatements. So when you're talking to me, I'm not verbally saying back to you what you said so that you understand, but I am processing it while we're having the conversation. Proactive listeners also use words that allow them to tactfully control the conversation through listening. Which is different than manipulating or doing it in a malicious manner. It's more of a emotional, like we said, emotionally intelligent like collaborative thing, right? Yeah, you're kind of guiding the conversation appropriately. I just feel like that can come across as like proactive listening is manipulating because that's a, such a huge buzzword and people are so trigger happy with slapping that label on something. Yes, it's different than manipulation. So we're tactfully controlling the conversation through listening. So those are actually positive things. We're not manipulating someone's behavior or thoughts or, or words. The other thing I mentioned was self-esteem. So self-esteem determines the level of positive or negative behavior you exert when feeling threatened. That, that completely makes sense. Because even in my own life, I know whenever I'm feeling threatened and my self-esteem is pretty low because of other circumstances or other things going on, I do not respond well to whatever that perceived threat is. Even if it's just like an offhand comment that was meant as a joke, like I don't take it well. 
Yeah. So when you're not feeling good about yourself, you have low self-esteem, you tend to react using uh, what one paper called cheap fuel. So that's excessive sarcasm, condescension and manipulation, hate, revenge, ignoring people, really making others feel worse than you do. So it's really projecting that feeling onto the person who, quote unquote, triggered that reaction. Yeah. And you, you can't give what you don't have. So if you don't feel good about yourself, how can you feel good about other people? I've always heard you can't pour from an empty teapot. <laughs> yep, exactly. So on the flip side, people with high self-esteem react using good fuel. And good fuel looks like self-acceptance, forgiveness, um, positive self-treatment, helping others without expectation, uh, really creating a positive atmosphere and catching others doing things right instead of wrong. And I love that idea. I really like that a lot. And gosh, I can relate this back to my own life so much in the workplace, at home, in my relationship with my family, my friends, my husband. I definitely notice a difference when I'm responding well to something and when I'm able to handle somebody else's bad mood or somebody else's frustration of seeing through how it makes me feel and seeing them for the hurt they're experiencing or the pain they're feeling versus seeing them through the lens of my hurt. That self-esteem really does play such a big role in that. And that's why I would rate you high in emotional intelligence because everything you just said is exactly that. So when you think about good fuel in an organization, what do you think that might look like? I mean, I picture going with like a a negative trigger or a negative, um, what's it called? A catalyst. I mean, I actually, I think of my husband in a lot of ways. There's certain circumstances at work where there will be times where people will be having frustrating days and he gets the brunt end of it and takes, they, they take it out on him and they're, they can be rude. They can be sassy. And he looks at them as the person they are not through the anger or emotion that they're expressing and really tries to get to the root of what the issue is and speak that truth into them and try and resolve it without feeling attacked. That is an excellent example. That is a pretty awesome, actually. Um, and people like him tend to bring more creativity, you know, more motivation. They're accountable for their actions. And all of that leads to higher quality and quantity of work and less stress. So him reacting in that way or responding versus reacting in that way really does help the team. And I would say, you know, if there was someone that is uh, kind of the opposite of him, people would really notice. You need that contrast sometimes to recognize these super positive people. I mean, we have definitely all had good experiences and bad experiences with others within ourselves. And when we look back on them and reflect on it, I mean, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. We can totally look back and see where, oh, I was looking through the lens of my hurt or, wow, I really could have handled that one better. Or, hey, props to me. I, I did good with that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so when we have the positive or the negative, I'm sorry, the high or the low emotional intelligent interactions with people at work, that expands way beyond just those confrontations, right? So what does that look like on how does that impact the rest of the job as well? It does. And there's one article that I really loved um, that talks about the ability to obtain resources and how 
emotional intelligence, higher or low emotional intelligence affects your ability to obtain resources. And that impacts how satisfied with your job you are. Gotcha. So when you say the ability to obtain resources, you're talking about like the desire to identify like what you need or just the general capability. So the, um, the ability to obtain resources is a super technical way of saying how you can get things done at work, either through um, physical resources that you need, um, com- like good communication and being able to express what you need and therefore you get what you need. That's really the gist of it is being able to appropriately express yourself so that you can get what you need to do your job well. So people with high emotional intelligence are able to do that because they're able to communicate. They're softer with their approach to people. They don't take things too personally. Whereas people with um, lower emotional intelligence have more of a struggle doing that because of the way that they present their behavior, the way that they're acting. And When you have a low ability to obtain resources at work, it makes it hard to do your job. And therefore, those people tend to have lower job satisfaction. So it's really picturing this kind of um, cycle of you can get what you need to do your work because you communicate well, blah, blah, blah. And then because you can get these things that you need, you're more satisfied with your job. So it's the high EI cycle. The low EI cycle would be people don't communicate well, they lash out at others, therefore others don't want to give them what they need or they're not able to obtain these resources. They have lower job satisfaction, which leads to worse you know, emotional intelligence presenting itself in a negative way. And when you say EI, you're just, you just mean emotional intelligence. Yes. I can certainly see how all of that ties together and plays out at work. And it gives me a fresh perspective on people who are not self-starters who would rather sit there and complain about not having the resources that they need than being willing to go get them or have the conversations or set themselves and others up for success of maybe it's not like maybe, maybe there's something that can be done about that aside from just wishing they were more proactive. Maybe there's an emotional intelligence component to it that I've not considered. Yeah, I think there is. And fortunately, emotional intelligence is something that can be developed in people. So there, you know, when I said that I didn't place a high value on it previously, this is one of the reasons that I do is because this is seriously impacts a person's well-being um, and the well-being of people around them. And, you know, people deserve to be at peace. So if we can help them develop their emotional intelligence that helps everybody else do better in life, then I think it's worth doing. Well, I think it's a, a, a giant ripple effect. Absolutely. I mean, okay, so we're talking about the ability to obtain resources. Keep going on what that can practically look like and play out as. When we talk about these resources, we're talking about any physical, psychological, social, or organizational aspects that are functional in achieving goals reducing job demands, associated physical, psychological costs uh, that stimulate personal growth, learning, stimulate development. So according to conservation of resources theory, humans are motivated to protect, maintain, and accumulate resources. These job type resources are included in that. Demands of the job cause resources to be depleted as individuals respond to demands at work. Um, gradually draining one's energy. And over time, that can also lead to burnout. What you're saying here is that 
we are all constantly being drained of our resources, right? Our physical resources, our mental resources, all of that can lead to burnout. So then when you have the emotional intelligence factor come into play, that higher emotional intelligence kind of helps you keep your stock room full, right? It kind of helps you use your other resources wisely to keep your resources piled up. I know I'm using the word resources a lot, but I, I think it, you can follow. Whereas when you have lower emotional intelligence, your stock room just continues to empty and empty and nothing's filling it up. So then you just get depleted and that's what leads to, or one of the things that can lead to burnout. Yes. So high emotional intelligence people can also, so they'll conserve the resources and use them appropriately, but they'll also ask for resources when they need them. So if they need a break, you know, if they need to take a vacation, if they need to go outside for five minutes, or if they need physical resources at work. So there's an element of kind of conservation of resources within oneself, but also the ability to ask for what you need. Okay. I can definitely see how this plays out in the workplace and I can see how it plays out at home too. And just in life in general and friendships and relationships. That's, this is very applicable. Natalie, I'm, I'm really glad you're breaking this down. Yeah. And you can relate this part to your life at home too, but a positive social relationship with your supervisor and your coworkers is one key type of job resources. So emotional intelligence is essential to facilitate that social interaction and to establish and maintain social relationships. People who are emotionally savvy are sensitive to, you know, not only their own, but to others' feelings and emotions, as we stated earlier. So because of that, they can harness their emotional regulation abilities in order to foster better social relationships with those coworkers and supervisors. And that allows them to acquire job resources from those same coworkers and supervisors through productive social exchanges. Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And it makes me think of relationships I've had with superiors and bosses and supervisors and with subordinates of when that relationship is healthy and there's that mutual emotional intelligence and that mutual respect, all of that kind of plays together. And when I need something, I have no qualms about going and asking for it or asking it from someone on both ends of the spectrum, right? Whereas when it's not quite as healthy, I can think of several examples where I felt like I just have to figure it out on my own. I, there's that lack of trust. I don't think that they're like, I'm going to look bad to them if I need something or if I don't understand or require more of them. So in which of those situations did you feel like you had higher job satisfaction? Oh, definitely the one where I felt capable of going to either my supervisor or my subordinates in the respective cases and asking them for what was necessary or encouraging them in what was needed versus feeling like, oh, shoot, I'm going to look like such a failure. I'm going to look so incompetent. Just not having that, that mutual respect and that mutual trust built up with that mutual emotional intelligence. So tying that all together, emotional intelligence helps you acquire job resources and that acquisition of job resources positively influences your perception of job satisfaction which suggests that high emotional intelligence doesn't automatically provide high job satisfaction, but that job resources acquisition, your ability to acquire those jobs actually is the mediating factor there. So if you have high emotional intelligence and you can acquire those resources, then you have higher job satisfaction. So I explained it in this way because I think it speaks to the importance of 
emotional intelligence training or emotional intelligence development in people so that you can help them acquire those resources and be happier in their job. Therefore, you know, reducing turnover, reducing negativity and conflict and things like that in the workplace. Well, the biggest one is really recruiting and selecting emotionally intelligent employees to have a satisfied workforce. But you should also develop your own emotional competencies because doing that can really help you gain job resources at work and boost your job satisfaction as well. And you could think about that for your team. You know, if you manage a team, help them develop these competencies so that everybody becomes more satisfied in their role. The last one, you know, specifically related to job satisfaction is, you know, organizations should provide job resources and other forms of support to employees in order to maintain a satisfied workforce. So there's two kind of angles there. So you can help them develop emotional intelligence in order to be better at acquiring job resources. But in the interim, making sure that people have the resources they need can help develop a more satisfied work workforce. What's the difference between getting the resources and making sure people have resources? Like, what's the difference between the two steps you just said? If they're incapable because they're low on emotional intelligence, if they're not asking for their resources, you know, while you're helping them develop that emotional intelligence, you need to give them the resources they need and make sure that they have them because they're not asking for them. Today's episode was all about giving a thorough understanding of what emotional intelligence is and how we can recognize it in ourselves. And then just giving some basics on the implications it has in the workplace. Natalie, give us some basic action items we can do between now and next week when we dive in deeper with the team implications and dynamics and the generational differences. What can we do this, this week to recognize and improve our emotional intelligence and start working on it? The most valuable thing you can do between now and next week when we dive further into teams and organizations and those generational differences is to take those two assessments that we mentioned earlier. There might be a couple of emotional intelligence assessments in there, um, but that predictive index assessment, there's a link in the show notes that only takes five minutes, and that is an assessment of personality. And then the emotional intelligence assessments will give you a baseline for where you fall on kind of the scale of emotional intelligence and a jumping off point, you know, where to start in your emotional intelligence journey. What I really like about those two action items, Natalie, is that it gives us an understanding, like you said, of where we're at. But then those assessments actually give us a couple of things that we can do to recognize and start that self-evaluation. So that's a really good starting place. Yeah, they're both very practical ways to start developing your own emotional intelligence. That's a wrap on part one of emotional intelligence. I hope this was helpful for you all out there listening. Make sure to follow us on LinkedIn if you haven't already, where we'll break down this episode throughout the next week. You can also reach out to us directly at hello at hhbpodcast.com. And just like last week, we have some great resources for you, both in the show notes and at hhbpodcast.com. So be sure to take the next step in developing your own emotional intelligence and go check those out.
One more thing before we go. Last week's podcast on entitlement at work brought up a lot of conversation and we decided to do a webinar to dive deeper into the action items on how to solve the entitlement problem. The link's in the show notes. If you can attend live, it's Thursday, December 22nd at noon Eastern. If it's after that date, the link will take you to the recording and you can download it right away. Thanks for listening to the Head, the Heart, and the Briefcase podcast. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcast by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcast. Then stay tuned for next week where we continue the deep dive into common workplace issues leaders like you face every day.